Welcome back to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Dylan Carmody, and I'm a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach from the U.S. On today's show, we have Judd Kalkoven, and we'll be discussing his research around all things injury modeling. We hope you enjoy the show. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Jen, how you doing, man? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me on here, Dylan. How are you? You know, I'm doing great. I'm uh, I'm very excited for this conversation. I feel like uh, a lot of these topics have been um, very much kind of rearing their heads in a lot of the things that I've been reading, and been I've been kind of increasingly interested in these topics. And I figured that you would be a perfect person to kind of get everything out in the open in terms of injury modeling and understanding these kind of I guess dynamic systems between them. And so. Um, before we get too deep into any one topic, I'd love for the listeners just to learn a little bit more about you and have you introduce yourself a bit. Uh, yep. So, uh, of course, my name is, is Judd Kalkovin. Uh, I'm a lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, primarily in the area of biomechanics. I guess from a, from a research perspective, uh, my interests very much lie in athletic injury. Um, so I've written quite a few conceptual works regarding, uh, I guess, the causal pathways and the mechanisms behind uh, gradual onset injuries, uh, acute traumatic injuries, etc. Uh, some of the mechanical principles that govern these kinds of injuries. Uh, so very, very much sort of my research area. Uh, I'm still a baby in research. I, I only finished my PhD uh, a couple of years ago in, in April 2021. Uh, so I'm still a, a relatively young researcher, um, but yeah, hopefully this is just the start of a of a long and fruitful career. Definitely, that's um, it's always great to put things in perspective from a PhD lens. I always feel like um, the the length of time it takes is uh, so different from many other degrees. Where you know, once you graduate from something like a, an undergrad degree or a master's degree, you know, two years out, you're like, yeah, okay, I'm like within the industry. Um, but from a perspective on research and getting your PhD, it's it's always very different. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a long process, and I think. Any anyone in academia would consider someone who has a fresh PhD to still be a, a baby in research. I love it. Um, so a lot of our uh, topics of conversation today will kind of be centered around this idea of you know injury modeling. Um, and I think a, a great way to kick things off is just to ask the question: you know, why do we even need models to begin with? Um, yeah, I guess. Maybe even before that, we can discuss a little bit about what are frameworks and what are models and what are theories, because this really sort of underpins why we need models, essentially. Um, and I guess, so a lot of my works, if you look at my, my works that I've, I've written and, and published, it's to do with, with graphical frameworks and models that, that outline yeah, specific causal pathways to injury. Um, so I guess, firstly, let's start off with uh, what is a theory? And I'll lead this into theoretical frameworks and then models on the back of that. Um, so of course, a, a theory 
is essentially a scientific explanation of why a phenomenon occurs or, or yeah, an ex explanation of the phenomenon and it allows us to make different predictions that are, are testable, right? So we run experiments, see if we can make predictions, see if this theory helps us explain a phenomenon. Um, a framework, right, is essentially a skeletal structure uh, of reasoning. So if you put those two together, you can have a theoretical framework. So a theoretical framework is essentially a skeletal structure that essentially maps out a theory, right? And we use that to guide uh, the research process. So we have this framework, maps out all these different links, all these different relationships that exist within a theory. And from that, we can form different hypotheses and, and yeah, run different tests and, and assessments and whatnot uh, and start to, I guess, test that framework. Um, and then a model on the back of that uh, can be conceptualized as an instantiation of, of a theory or a framework. So they're often narrower in scope uh, and they focus on a particular element of a theory or framework. Uh, so they can be quite focused. Uh, and this is, a, of course, a feature of a model. The reason it's useful is that it does focus. It can be hyper-focused on a specific element of, of these aspects. Uh, and then, of course, within that, you have all kinds of models, right? You have graphical models, statistical models, computational models. They all do different things. Um, so, yeah, I guess, why, why do we need these things? Uh, I guess a good starting point is, is that uh, it basically gives us a starting base to uh, form our research questions and start to test things, right? So, one of the Big problems if you don't have frameworks and models underpinning your research uh, is that it's I kind of see it's like pinning tail, playing pin the tail on the donkey, right? And you and you're blindfolded and you're just kind of stabbing in the dark. And this can be, I mean, this is a this is what exploratory research is, right? So uh, sort of exploratory research, which is the surface level of research, is you might have some variables that you've collected. And there might be some sort of outcome of interest. Maybe it's like injury and you don't really know how these things could be related, but, you know, maybe something's there. So you might do some sort of analysis to see if you get some sort of association. And this might be the start of, uh, start of the research pro uh, process. Maybe you find something interesting and then that leads to further questions and, and you research it, right? Um, so that's exploratory research. Now, there's certainly a place for that, but... I, I like to develop theoretical underpinnings and models before I do my applied research. Because like I said, I see it as kind of like pin the tail on the donkey. So I'll, get, I'll give a, another analogy. It's going to be a little bit weird analogy, but you'll, you'll get the points I'm making. But let's say you've got a car, but there's 10,000 pedals in the car, right? And you want to find the car, the, the pedal that drives the car. Uh, so one way to do that is you could test every single pedal in the hope that you might find one pedal <laughs> that actually drives the car, right? And that's kind of that exploratory pin the tail on the donkey. Maybe we find something and it works, but we don't really know what's guiding us. So sort of what frameworks and models provide is it's kind of like what I'm, I guess what I suggest in my work is why don't we open up the hood of the car and study the engine and study the parts of the engine and build a framework to see how this works. And then we might see, <laughs> you know, what's, cord and from where actually leads to the pedal that drives the car right and we can figure it out that way instead of just playing endless games of, of pin the tail on the donkey um so it's extremely useful 
from that perspective in the sense that it uh, it it provides an underlying structure to a phenomenon and we can test various links within that structure to try and explain that phenomenon uh and uh, you know hopefully solve some some useful problems i i really appreciate that and i think it it sets a good precedent for the conversation um it kind of sounds like this idea of you know um it's it's common for people to to colloquially call like some methods of research, you know, you have to call your shot, right? You have to create this explanation and then you can test it rather than continually um, just trying to look at something that's more, um, you know, descriptive in nature. Um, where do you feel like in terms of some of these uh, underpinnings or some of these models or frameworks or theories, um, where do you feel like a lot of times within sports science practitioners or researchers, whoever they may be, um, tend to get things, I guess, wrong in terms of their interpretations of some of these models or frameworks? Yeah, I think, um, so if I just look at sports science as a whole, I think we're extremely guilty of doing that pin the tail on the donkey approach. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, If anyone reads my papers, you'll notice that I'm quite critical of GPS for trying to predict injury from GPS, right? And I think a lot of the approach that we have in sports science is that a technology exists, so we try and use it for everything, right? So it's like, okay, we got a GPS. Let's see if we can predict injury with GPS. Let's see if we can predict, you know, whatever, performance outputs. Let's see if we can predict, and we try and use it for everything. And then something else comes along, and it's an IMU. And now it's like, okay, let's see if we can predict everything with it. Let's see if we can predict. So it's, it's just because it's almost like the process that I see is driven primarily just by the existence of data. So we have this data exists, I'm going to try and relate it, right? And there's no real thought to the underlying mechanisms of the phenomenon that you're trying to solve or the problem that you're trying to solve, right? Um, So I'll I'll give you another parallel where uh, a recent movie that came out, Oppenheimer, right, about the nuclear bomb. I love that movie, but it's something that, as a scientist, I'd pick up on, but people probably wouldn't, wouldn't pick up on this. But they always bang on about theory, right? These all theoretical physicists, and then they get excited about theory meets practice, right? But what that movie shows is the importance of theory to solving a problem. You know, they didn't just stumble across building a nuclear bomb just by testing, like <laughs> putting random things together just because they exist, and then they just found a nuclear bomb, right? They mapped the entire thing out theoretically. They tested different th- aspects of their theoretical framework. And eventually they got to a point where they're like, you know what? We understand this so well. Let's go out and build this nuclear bomb, right? And I see it as the same thing. We have, we have so much knowledge about the processes governing athletic injury. So for example, how cumulative damage forms in a bone to form stress fractures. We, we know so much about that process, right? But I feel like we completely neglect all of this for this pin, of, pin the tail of the donkey approach where we don't actually need to. Like we can map out these structures and these pathways in so, so much detail because you have so much knowledge, but it just seems to be thrown out the window for this, for this approach that, you know, it doesn't seem sensical to me because I don't think it's necessary. Like I get exploratory research if you don't know, <laughs> if you don't know anything about the underlying structure. But when we know so much about the underlying structure, why aren't we using the underlying structure to guide our research, right? Why am I seeing endless papers using GPS trying to predict injury or whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that just doesn't 
doesn't make sense to me um, in a lot of these scenarios. Yeah, the the thought that comes to my mind, um, which I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, is um, it seems like especially within the sports science world, people often will take some small bit of like descriptive information, descriptive research, and then implement that as predictive um, and implement that as like a causal factor when in reality, it's just something that's trying to, you know, describe some type of a phenomenon, some type of a, a injury risk or something along those lines. Um, when in reality, it seems like there's there's more and more steps that are needed to be taken before something can be labeled as that. Um, could you maybe describe some of that process in terms of laying something out from like a, a descriptive point of view and then going into something that could potentially be considered predictive? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, would, I didn't actually expect the conversation to go down this road, but this is super interesting because I'm writing a paper that should, it's in the final stages of review pretty much exactly on this topic, right? And it's all about causal inference from observational research. So you, you mentioned about uh, finding an association, but you have no idea if it's causal or not. And, you know, what does this mean for prediction, etc. So you're absolutely correct, right? If you have a statistical association between two variables, this can occur for many, many reasons other than causality. So I'll, I'll give you an example of this, right? Um, I can use, so there's a statistical association between shoe size in children and their education level. And I can use shoe size to make predictions on a child's education level, right? And the reason this exists is because as kids get older, so let's say a whole bunch of different ages of children, as they get older, their feet grow, right? And their education level increases because they're getting older, they're going up grades, right? So these two things are statistically associated through a confounding variable, which is age. So, of course it's non-causal, like I wouldn't surgically increase my kids' feet thinking that it's going to increase their education level, right? It makes no sense. Um, but I can still make predictions from non-causal data. So it's important to distinguish between prediction and causality. So I'll give you another example of, of prediction from non-causal data. So um, I'm going to give you three variables. Let's say you've got a flagpole the shadow, the length of the shadow of the flagpole and the angle of the sun, right? So I can go, okay, from a causal perspective, I can have the sun, the angle of the sun and the height of the, the flagpole, and I could predict the height of the length of the shadow. And you'd go, okay, that makes sense, right? The sun and the flagpole together causes the length of the shadow. And you could see that as like a form of causal prediction, right? But if I gave you the length of the shadow and the angle of the sun, I could predict the height of the flagpole, right? Now, that's not causal. Of course, the, the length of the shadow doesn't cause the height of the flagpole. That's caused by the carpenter who crafted the, the flagpole, right? So we technically don't need causality for prediction, right? It's, it's two separate problems, and we can make predictions uh, without necessarily having causal knowledge. I mean, this is, this is how big data with artificial intelligence works, right? You collect a massive data set, you make predictions from this data, um, but the problem is a lot of this is black box, so we don't understand the structures under, underlying it, and we don't know the causal structures, or even if there are causal structures, all of this is all a black box. And the problem with prediction without causality 
is that you don't know where to intervene, right? So let's say, for example, I could predict that some player is going to suffer an Achilles rupture, but I knew nothing about the underlying causal structure. How do I intervene to prevent it? You can't because you don't know the pathways to do it. All you would go is, um, oh yeah, I'm predicting, I'm predicting that with a high level of accuracy that you're going to rupture your Achilles and the player will go, oh, okay, cool. Thanks for the help. Like, how can you sort it out? And you, you know, you have no idea because you just say like, I don't know. I don't know how the model's working. It's just <laughs> giving me a good prediction, right? Uh, so causality and prediction are actually two different problems. Um, yeah, of course, a problem we have in sports science, and this is, this is science in general, is that the typical way to determine causality is through a randomized control trial, right? Um, but the problem with a randomized control trial is that they can often be unfeasible. And I see this in elite sport is one example where like, if I want to do a randomized control trial uh, on injury, one is sports teams don't want to do that because you're going to interfere with whatever their training processes are. You have to get a sufficient sample size of injuries in order to do that. Um, and yeah, it, it can be really just not, not practical to be able to do one. Um, so that, this, is a, this you probably touched on a critical factor that made me almost leave academia. And Franco, for anyone who you knows, I work close with Franco and Pilizzeri. Franco and Pilizzeri joining UTS sort of saved me and inspired me in my academic <laughs> direction. Uh, so I was stuck in this idea where I was like, okay, if, if association is not causation due to confounding and RCTs are the only way to determine causation, but we can't run RCTs, like what the hell are we doing? Like, what is the point of any of this? Why are we scientists? Like rest of my family's in finance. I should just quit and go do finance. And I was bringing this up so Franco joined UTS and I was bringing this up with him. And yeah, so I've had this discussion with lots of people and no one had an answer for me. Uh, and Franco said to me, you know, you're absolutely right, Judd. You're absolutely right. But what you can do is start to make causal inferences if you know the underlying causal structure. And a first starting point to this is developing a framework. So if you have a framework that maps out some of these mechanisms, you can start to tentatively interpret some of these associations causally from observational data. Um, and just so I don't go on for too long on, on a tangent, this basically introduced me to a, a whole new field known as causal inference. Um, if any, anyone's familiar with the book of why by Judea Pill, I recommend it extremely highly. Um, absolute game changing for me, but it's, it's essentially how we can get potentially get causal effects from observational data um, using causal diagrams and causal models, specifically one called a directed acyclic graph. Um, and basically what this model does is it's, it's similar to a framework in a way, but you essentially draw arrows between variables to show causal directions. Uh, and you use this graph to determine your statistical analysis. So it tells you what variables to control for, to control for confounding, to produce causal effects, what variables that if you control for it, um, it will actually introduce bias into your analysis, right? It, it maps out this whole thing. Um, and they've done some amazing things with, with these diagrams. I saw a, a study where they mapped out like the entire neural structure of some kind of fish 
the entire brain structure using these diagrams uh, and artificial intelligence. So they're, they're extremely powerful causal mechanisms for getting causal data uh, from observational research. Sorry, I've probably gone on a bit of a tangent here, but <laughs> hopefully you found that interesting. Joe, no, I thought that was um, I thought that was awesome. Anytime you can cycle in any of the like uh, acyclic graphs and all those sorts of things, it's it'll definitely pique my interest. But um, I feel like when with all this conversation of models and theories and concepts, I can always see um, somebody listening or something like that, almost like not necessarily accusing, but pointing fingers and saying, well, this is just like people playing armchair quarterback and saying, um, quarterback American football, excuse me, but, um, (laughs) um, just saying, you know, like, Hey, you know, these are all like fine and great, but this is, these are all still just, you know, theories, or these are all still just models. Like if, if RCTs are the only way in which we, um, are able to infer causality, then why are we not in like, I guess, really pushing to try and figure out new ways in which we can actually infer that causality through control trials? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the point of that I was, I was making earlier is that RCTs are not the only way to determine causality, right? Um, so that this is sort of the, what the field of causal inferences has developed. It's developing alternative ways to, de- to discover causal effects. Uh, outside of RCTs, because yeah, like I said, sometimes RCTs are are not possible. Like for example, let's say I wanted to assess the causal effect of uh, smoking on on lung cancer, right? If I split two groups of people and then expose one group of people intentionally to something that causes cancer, you know that's extremely unethical. So you can't do an RCT in that scenario. So like, what option is available to you? Right. And the thing is, is we do develop causal knowledge through alternative means and observation, because if we didn't, all of us humans would be dead. Right. So if I look at just everyday observations, like a simple causal model is I know not to pat a lion because it will probably kill me. Right. Because I make all sorts of causal assumptions based on my causal understanding of the world. So I might go, all right, it has sharp teeth. I know sharp things will hurt me if they if they enter me and they could kill me, right? Uh, I know that uh, it's a carnival. It eats lots of meat. I know that it's big. I know it eats animals that are roughly my size, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have this causal model and understanding of a lion. I have a pretty good hunch that causally it would be a bad idea for me to pat this lion because it would probably cause my death, right? There's no RCTs. I've I've made that cause set of causal assumptions and built that causal model i've never seen an rct to do with patting lions in my life but i have an understanding of the world from all my observations of being alive and i've formed a causal model used using reasoning appropriate reasoning to have some sort of causal understanding of how the system works right and if we didn't if we didn't do that we'd probably all be dead because i wouldn't be we wouldn't be able to distinguish between drinking cyanide and drinking water and what causes my death and what causes me to live etc etc uh so we do have causal understandings that aren't derived from rct the problem is, is, of course, this is extremely susceptible to bias. So I have all sorts of observations that could be very well incorrect, right? And humans do this all the time. You see conspiracy theorists, they draw all sorts of reasoning that, that doesn't make sense, right? Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge that, yeah, the, the work, if you, if you want to look him up, his, his name is Judea Pearl, another, another really big hitter in causal inferences, Miguel Hernan, uh, is basically developing methods on 
making causal inferences from observational data, not from uh, not necessarily from RCTs. And a key way to do that is by producing causal models that underpin these causal assumptions. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you, sorry, I, I know I've gone on a bit long, but another simpler example of how a model is, is extremely useful is let's say I'm interested in, in researching the link between uh, calcium intake and athletic injury, right? One way I can do that is I just research that link, right? People take calcium and look at injury risk and see if there's some sort of relation, right? What a causal model does is it can break down the different pathways and mechanisms through which these things work. And then we can test these different relationships to validate the model as a whole. Uh, so for example, I can go, okay, calcium decreases, or I think it, it decreases injury risk by increasing bone strength, right? So in my diagram, I can draw a link from calcium to bone strength and bone strength to injury risk. And what I can do is I can research the link between calcium and bone strength. I can research the link between bone strength and injury, and I can research the link between calcium and injury risk. And if all of these things map out, you know, I've provided really strong evidence to support my causal model. Um, and I've provided mechanisms, right? The mechanism through which calcium reduces injury risk is through increased bone strength. And mechanisms are understanding mechanisms, which is what you get, something you get from causal models is extremely important. Um, and uh, to give you a, a non-sporting example of where this is very important is uh, a few centuries ago, a lot of people died from scurvy because, so someone figured out that citrus fruit, of course, because they contained vitamin C, prevented scurvy, right? And then what happened was everyone was eating oranges and there was an economic crisis of some sort. And everyone thought it was the acidity in the citrus fruit that prevented scurvy. So Oranges became too expensive and they swapped these oranges out for West Indian limes, which had very high in acidity, but very low levels of vitamin C. Uh, and then even worse than that, people started to boil these limes, which further disintegrated the vitamin C, right? So what actually happened was they replaced the high vitamin C fruit with low vitamin C fruit, not understanding the mechanism. People started to die. They were also boiling, boiling it, so they were disabling the mechanism through which it worked, essentially. Uh, and then there was the whole citrus fruit prevent scurvy came under disrepute. And the result is that it cost hundreds of, if not thousands of people, their lives through scurvy because we didn't understand the mechanism, right? So when context changed, we didn't know what to do. So mechanisms are extremely important for understanding the causal effects through which things act so we know where to intervene when contexts change. And these are all things that causal models map out and they allow us to test these different mechanisms and relationships through mechanisms, right? We call it things like direct and indirect effects. Um, there's an analysis called, called a causal mediation analysis which helps us determine the effects through different mechanisms and different pathways, etc. And it's all guided by causal models. Jadam, I am loving this conversation. It, it is not going at all where I thought we were going to go, but I'm loving that we're going there. Um, you, you've mentioned like obviously these ideas of like uh, directional relationships, causal models, right? Like this idea of a uh, directed acyclic graph, all those sorts of things. 
I could see um, a listener who's familiar with a bunch of these types of frameworks visually seeing something like a directed acyclic graph um, and then also seeing something like the example. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Natalia Bittencourt paper and from a complex systems uh, framework for sports injury, um, seeing like just visually that um, web of determinants from that graph and a directed acyclic graph, like looking kind of similar where there's like lines connecting different things that look like risks and all those sorts of things. Um, could you maybe describe the difference between something like a directed acyclic graph versus something like a web of determinants? Yeah, so a directed acyclic graph, I think something that's very important is that each arrow um, represents a causal effect, right? So it's actually a, a mathematical tool to show causal effects and effects acting through different mechanisms. Uh, so like I said, it, it guides specific statistical analyses uh, that allow you to determine various effects acting through different mechanisms. And from what I understand, there's no, yeah, there's no real model that that does that. Like directed acyclic graphs are unique in that. So, yeah, a lot of my work, if you if you look at my conceptual framework, for example, I I have a conceptual framework for injury. I'm referring to uh, this is just a conceptual framework, right? So each arrow. I mean, it, it's acts similarly to a directed acyclic graph. So it shows like something precedes something and whatnot, but it technically doesn't highlight or, or it doesn't map out the statistical analysis in the way that a direct, directed acyclic graph does. Um, like a directed acyclic graph really is a mathematical tool where the framework is just a graphical tool to show concepts of interest. Uh, so I think that's an that's a important thing to distinguish. Awesome. Um, we're going to switch gears a little bit um, and kind of take a, a large turn in our discussion. But um, with all of this conversation around, you know, models and injury modeling, and given the uh, example that you just gave in terms of the, the model that you presented, um, can you walk us through how you have, you know, used the definition of injury within the multiple papers that you have published? I feel like that can be a, a great starting point for this conversation. Okay, so yeah, basically you asked me what is my definition of injury. Correct. Okay, exactly. Uh, well, let me. I've got. I've written it down here so I don't stuff it up. But I'll, I'll read out the definition from the IOC, so the the International Olympic Committee. So they have uh, injury is tissue damage or other derangement of normal physical function due to participation in sports resulting from rapid or repetitive transfer of kinetic energy. Right. In my papers, I typically describe it something along the lines as uh, athletic injury occurs when the stresses and strains experienced by a tissue result in damage that is deemed severe enough to be considered an injury. Um, now, something that's important to note is that these two definitions, my definition and the IOC definition, are pretty much identical. Right, A transfer of kinetic energy and stress and strain is essentially the same thing. So in a stress-strain curve, the energy under a stress-strain curve, uh, sorry, the, the area under a stress-strain curve represents energy, right? So it's the same definition. Um, from the IOC definition, where I disagree with them, so they have tissue damage or other derangement of normal physical function, right? Under that definition, that means muscle damage is means you're injured. Right. So then we'd all be injured every single time we train. 
That makes no sense to me. Or what about normal phys- a derangement of normal physical function? Well, fatigue is a derangement of normal physical function. So every time I experience fatigue, am I now injured, right? That doesn't make sense. So uh, something where I think I, I improve upon this definition, this IOC definition, is that really there's some critical damage threshold uh, by which an injury is deemed to occur. Because getting tissue damage, some form of damage or mechanical fatigue of a tissue is a normal process. It's, it's normal to the training process. If I go into the gym and I lift weights, I'm going to get muscle damage. And that is part of the process of developing more muscle and getting stronger. So to define that as an injury, and that would technically fit under the IOC's definition of injury, I think is, you know, it's just incorrect, right? So yeah, there's some critical damage threshold where we consider something to be an injury. Uh, and really, this is, I think there needs to be tissue-specific definitions. And the reason I say that is, is that this would present differently. Uh, so for example, uh, in bone, maybe the threshold is when the first micro crack forms. Because you, again, to develop your bone strength, mechanical loading is a big part of that. So you, you load your bone it will mechanically fatigue to some degree, which is damage, but that's critical to remodeling. So, okay, how much damage is too much? Like, when does that become an injury? Uh, it might be, yeah, when the first micro crack forms, right? Then you could consider, okay, well, that's not a leading to any positive adaptation. I've actually chronically damaged my tissue. Um, if I look at tendons, you know, you might get some sort of kinked fibers that, it's not acting as a stimulus for adaptation, but it's rather chronically detrimental to the, to the health and function of that tendon. So there's some, there's some critical damage threshold that needs to be exceeded for it to be considered an, an injury. Right. When we look at this idea of um, injury or you know, damage and expand upon it in terms of, you know, I think many will be familiar with ideas of a, you know, something considered like a, a time loss injury versus a non-time loss. Um, how how does this idea of maybe time to recovery or those sorts of, I guess, factors play into this type of a definition? Yeah, look, I think uh, it's important to acknowledge that applied definitions exist because they're useful in applied settings not because they're technically the most correct definition, right? So for example, let's say, let's say we know the exact threshold when a micro crack forms, like that, that's our definition of injury. So let's say, yeah, you develop your first micro crack in the tibia and that's the threshold where you've gone from non-injured to injured. To determine that in a practical setting, uh, you know, it's near impossible. <laughs> uh, unless you're, you know, high resolution scans constantly for an athlete and whatnot. So what what you know sports teams will do is something like okay, time loss injury, uh, which is fine, right? You've you've created a definition that is more workable in an applied setting because to strictly apply the I'm gonna call it the strictly correct definition is just not practically viable. Uh, so I think it's important to acknowledge the limitations of applied definitions. And of course, when you have limitations, that causes some sort of problems. And like, I'm not, I'm not having a go at applied definitions. They're, they're needed because you have to function in applied settings. I think it's just important to be aware of the limitations of them, right? Um, but I still think you need, you need that fundamental 
strict scientific definition as the ideal and the closer you can get to that the better a lot of the time so yeah yeah and i I think it's it's important to acknowledge the idea of like this you're rather than saying it's a it's a bad definition or something like that you're just acknowledging the bounds of the definition itself and then understanding you know where that definition essentially fits within an applied setting and then understanding like all right this is where we're no longer allowing it to be applied to other scenarios um as it's you know going to be helpful again from an applied setting but we need to be a little bit more strict when we're implementing things like research and practice and things like that but um shifting gears a little bit more again um can we maybe unpack like the the dynamics a little bit between the qualities that you mentioned in terms of stress and strain of tissues and i guess we'll keep it broad and just say how they're related to performance and injury yep um well, I'm gonna I'm gonna primarily focus on injury here. Well, uh, from from a let me just address performance quickly. Like, if you're looking at the training process, we we adapt due to the the mechanical pathway is a big part of adaptation, right? If you're weightlifting, when you lift a weight, that's a physical load, right? That's producing a force with the help of gravity that you're resisting, right? And that causes stresses and strains on your tissue, and this is part of the process of driving the uh the training process right uh so it leads to adaptation uh so it's very important in the adaptation pathway to performance uh yeah it's a it's a critical pathway in in that regard from an injury perspective stress and strain as as highlighted in in the injury definitions that we presented is really the ultimate mechanism of injury right and what i mean by that is that you apply a force to a tissue and when the stress and strain experienced exceeds the mechanical strength of that tissue, an injury occurs, right? So why is this important? Well, this is important because essentially every single variable that we consider causal to athletic injury occurrence has to either act through the mechanical loading experienced by the tissue or the strength developed by that tissue, every single variable, right? That's the ultimate mechanism that decides whether an injury occurs. So let's say, for example, I'm interested in in nutrition and I have some supplements and I think this might help with injury, right? What's the pathways it has to act through? It has to act through a whole bunch of mechanistic pathways, but eventually it has to culminate into either impacting the mechanical strength of those tissues. So maybe it enhances your bone strength or or your muscle strength, or it has to impact how those tissues are loaded in some way. In this scenario, that's probably less likely. But you know, if you look at training, yeah, maybe I'm doing knee stability work, right? How does that potentially prevent knee injury? Well, it in a sporting scenario, it might prevent the ACL from being overly mechanically loaded, right? So it has to act through that pathway and influence that pathway in some way. Um, now, the primary, I guess aspect where i found it to be particularly important to i guess acknowledge the process of mechanical loading and tissue damage formation is really gradual onset injuries uh because there are specific mathematical processes or or functions that describe damage accumulation so if you look at if you look at injury 
the problem we're trying to solve is a damage accumulation problem. So if I look at yeah, tibial stress fractures in, in running, what is an injury? Well, it's repetitive mechanical loads fatiguing that bone until eventually a micro crack forms, right? That's damage accumulation. Now, this is extremely important because there is no clearly definable relationship between cumulative load and cumulative damage. You have to account for the loading pattern, right? What do I mean by that? I know that was a, a bit of a technical mouthful, but I'll, I'll give you a, a simple example. Let's say I've got a hammer and I'm going to hit it against the wall, right? I could do one 100 Newton hits against the wall. My cumulative load would be 100, right? One times 100. Alternatively, I could do 100 one Newton hits on the wall. My cumulative load is also 100. So both of these scenarios, my cumulative load is 100. The damage outcomes you get in that scenario are drastically different, right? The one 100 Newton hit causes exponentially more damage than the 101 Newton hits, right? Um, and that, that is a very big effect. So for example, let's say the damage caused by a 100 Newton hit could be similar to the damage caused by two 90 Newton hits, right? So it's, so it's described by some sort of power function. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those two 90 Newton hits has a cumulative load of 180, and that causes a similar damage to the one 100 Newton hits, which only has a cumulative load of 100. So, so a big thing that's important to acknowledge is that cumulative load in itself is an incorrect, uh, I guess, measure, right? It doesn't actually describe the function, the, the, the phenomenon that we want to look at. We have to account for the loading prop. Uh, the, ah, we have to account for the loading pattern, right? And the thing is, I look across all of sports science, I guarantee almost every sports team is using a cumulative load metric, right? And the reality is, is that I think those are extremely flawed. You have to account for the loading pattern, right? So if you have like, if you look at running, sometimes you have intensity times duration. The reality is you probably need to weight intensity by some power function. Uh, because like if I look at, yeah, look at the, the cumulative load between marathon runners and sprinters, right? A cumul the cumulative load of a marathon runner would be honestly like 100 plus times the cumulative load of a sprinter, yet sprinters get injured all the time and lots of marathon runners don't get injured, right? So, <laughs> you know, try and make sense of that in, the, in that scenario. So it's, yeah, it's highlighting these processes that govern the actual phenomenon of injury occurrence. So that's sort of reverse engineering the process, right? Uh, going back, what is an injury? What is the process that governs this formation? What are the mass mathematical functions governing crack formation and injury? And then this is, these are things that we have to follow. If, we, if we're going to want to get really great injury risk assessments, right? We can't just ignore these things. Like it's, it's very important to, to understand it. Yeah, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And not only that, but especially we're in, in the example that we're talking about right now, we're the, the main example that we're talking about is some type of bone stress injury and not necessarily acknowledging the, the different tissue characteristics that may or may not change when we talk about something like tendon versus muscle um, and understanding, you know, the, like I was saying, like the stiffness or uh, strain characteristics that may uh, be altered. Um, I know you've done a, a great job in terms of touching on um, and some 
some things that your papers have touched on as well is this uh, variability of these sorts of properties associated between these different types of tissues like bone, tendon, and muscle. Um, I was hoping maybe you can just touch on how these different characteristics or how these characteristics are different between um, you know muscle, tendon, and bone. Yep. So I think uh, the big thing here is muscle. So I've, of course, I've, I've written a few papers on on muscle as well. Is extremely complicated from a mechanical behavior sense because it's an active tissue, right? So if I look at bone, those mechanical properties, so the stiffness of the bone, etc., it is what it is in that moment of time, right? Same with like tendon, same with cartilage. All of these are passive tissues. They have its mechanical characteristics, and those are relatively set. And of course, you can change them over time, but but slowly, right? Muscle. As soon as you activate muscle and cross bridges start to form and you start to produce tension, you completely change the mechanical behavior, right? And every time you increase the tension in the muscle, you're stiffening the muscle. So it's almost like you can think of it, for anyone that's not familiar with, with stiffness that's, that's listening, you can think of stiffness as like a concrete slab is extremely stiff. Like if you apply force to it, it's not going to deform, right? It's, or it's very minuscule. You, you wouldn't, it's not even perceptible. So very small deformation. Where an elastic band, if you apply force to an elastic band, it's going to stretch a lot, right? So it's very compliant. Muscle can almost achieve or basically achieve both of these conditions, right? When my muscle is completely relaxed, I'm going to apply a little bit of force. It's got very low stiffness and it's going to lengthen, right? Or when it's extremely highly active, it's basically going into like concrete state, right? I can apply a lot of force very stressful conditions, uh, and it experiences a lot less strain, right? A lot less deformation. And then, of course, it can achieve everything in between, which is what gives it its functionality. Uh, so the thing that's extremely complicated about muscle is that, yeah, depending on its state, its activation state, at that po- exact point in time, it completely changes the mechanical behavior of that tissue. And that's something that, that's unique to muscle. Um, so it's, yeah, that with that brings a, a very complicated set of problems. Uh, yeah, essentially. Judd, with all these sorts of, you know, different areas and different variables that we've been bringing up, there's, um, I think the, the main theme that I've been hearing pretty much this entire conversation has been, uh, the idea of all these things are very complicated in terms of modeling, um, looking at risk, looking at injury, looking at performance. Um, when when you see or when with your background and knowledge with all these different areas, I know you've been critical in the past in terms of things like GPS or other areas. Um, but when you see these ideas behind, take something like the acute chronic workload ratio in terms of like trying to distill the entirety of some type of um, external load uh, versus mechanical load, obviously, but distilling this entirety of like external load into one variable or into one thing and saying, this is the likelihood of somebody getting injured or those sorts of things. Can you maybe unpack what, I guess, inherent flaws these sorts of um, attempts to quantify injury risk have? Uh, Yes. Okay. So I think you're going down the training load route here sounds like it i think i think one thing that's extremely important is we need to discuss what training load actually is right training load is just a construct you can have 
a million measures of training load that are, and I'm putting it in inverted commas, validated measures of training load, but that doesn't really mean anything, right? It's got to be valid for what purpose? So, for example, training load, I could have distance from a GPS and my GPS correctly measured distance. So I might see a paper that says this is a valid measure of training load. Now, that doesn't really mean anything if distance isn't useful for anything, right? Or I could use number of accelerations or I can use mechanical load or I can use literally anything. You can use almost anything. And the question of if it's useful or not depends how that specific measure is reflective of the mechanisms in some way of the phenomenon that you're trying to look at, right? So for example, uh, if I said to you, I've got the world's biggest data set on tarot cards, right? Tarot card readings. I'm going to predict injury with it. You would know that that makes no sense because there's no mechanistic link there, right? I could use artificial intelligence. You know, I could have a million data sets, such big data, right? We're going to solve it. If the patterns don't exist in the data, you're not going to have success, right? There's got to be some some link there that's good. I think a problem with these metrics is that they don't look at the actual technologies and what it's measuring and how this is reflective of the process. So for example, a GPS, that just gives you spatio-temporal data, right? Space over, over time. How is space over time reflective of the pathways that lead to an injury, right? And it's very, very weak, that link. So I think part of part of the underlying theory, and of course, earlier I banged on about the importance of theory. If I was to ask someone with training load, what's your theory about how it, how it leads to injury or relates to injury? It's basically, you know, I'm running and I do too much and something happens and I'm injured, right? That's like almost the strength of the theory I've heard. Like it's, it's extremely linked. So I go, okay, well, let's, let's make this a bit better, right? Let's say I go... I'm running and I develop muscle damage in my hamstring and therefore my risk of injury is higher, right? Then I'll say, okay, but are you measuring muscle damage, right? Is this a valid measure of muscle damage? And they'll be like, no. And I'll be like, okay, so it doesn't really work there, right? It's kind of like this jacket. So they'll be like, okay, well, I'm running and I get fatigued and maybe because I'm fatigued, I do something weird and I get tired and I get injured. I go, okay, cool. But is this a valid measure of fatigue? Show me where this is a valid measure of fatigue. So it's almost like this jack of all trades that can capture something, but it captures nothing specific, <laughs> but it doesn't really capture anything, right? Um, so I think that's that's a big problem that I have with it is that, yeah, the underlying theory supporting it is weak. And yeah, if I'm trying to look at specific injuries, I don't really see how, how it can give me good predictions of, of that injury. Uh, and then if I look at, let's let's differentiate between different mechanisms of, of different injuries, right? Because another big problem I have is that people lump all injuries into an analysis, like these are all the same thing, but they're completely different. Like the mechanisms underpinning an ACL rupture versus a hamstring injury are completely different. And then like a clear example of this is that as you fatigue, your risk of, ha- of ACL injury actually reduces. But as you fatigue, your risk of hamstring injury increases, right? The reason this occurs is, is that earlier on in sporting events, you're extremely powerful. So if I sidestep, I'm at my most explosive because I'm not tired. And this seems to be a critical factor in ACL injuries. And then as I fatigue, 
everything's done at a slower pace. When I sidestep, it's slower. There's less power. There's less forces. There's less mechanical load. And this would, of course, have a protective effect. So ACL injury risk reduces. But then if I'm running a lot, okay, my hamstring fatigues, and this could increase the injury risk of the hamstring. So you actually have the same variable that is damaging to one type of injury and increases the risk of injury is actually protective to another type of injury. So yeah, a big problem I have is you really need to differentiate between the causal processes of different types of injury. And you need to have, I think, oh, the way I'm leading with my research is an injury-specific approach. I'm less confident about these generic, like, yeah, like an ACWR that, like, you just, it just predicts injury, right? Like, well, what does that mean? Like, there's all kinds of different injuries with different mechanisms. Um, I guess if I look at that specific metric, there's lots of things that don't make sense. I was, I've been extremely critical of that in one of my articles. Um, but like, for example, having a ratio has a weighting to it. So an example of that is, let's say I'm just going to use arbitrary values here, but let's say I have a chronic load of 100 um, and an acute load of 150. Uh, my ratio would be 1.5, right? Or let's say 200, and that could put me at a very high risk. So I've, yeah, let's say, okay, chronic load of 100, acute load of 200. Um, that gives me a ratio of two that could put me at, at, a, at a high risk, right? But then if I have a chronic load of 1,000 and I go and my acute load is 1,100, right? So I've gone up the same absolute amount. I've gone up by 100 in both scenarios. My ratio is only 1.1. That, that weighting only exists because there's a ratio. Like there's no scientific justification for that weighting. It's just because it's, it's induced by using a ratio, right? So it makes no sense. Using one month of data to one week of data, the justification for that is just it's convenient. Again, there's no, there's no mechanical or physiological reasoning behind that. It's just convenient, right? So there's a lot of things. One is I don't think the technology captures the underlying processes. I think there's a lot of things that just don't really make sense to me. Um, and then, uh, yeah, seeing it, I've seen high chronic loads are bad for injury, High chronic loads are good for injury. Low chronic loads are bad for injury. Low chronic loads, good for injury. High acute load. I've seen like every combination that exists presented and I've reviewed papers and they show everything in contradictory direct directions. Uh, and of course, you know, replication is an important part of research as well. And I just don't see replication of good predictive results. Um, so there's a, yeah, a lot of things that I just don't buy, <laughs> to be honest. Jed, that was a uh, a mic drop moment. I feel like if I've ever heard one, um, those are some <laughs> some awesome points that you made, um, and definitely you know makes a lot of uh, a lot of valid points in terms of questioning some of the things that maybe we use as practitioners. Um, in there, I, I want to be cognizant of your time, but in there you had uh, mentioned this idea of an injury specific approach. Um, wrapping things up here, what is what does that look like when it comes to um, injury modeling or things like that? Yep. Okay. I've got, I'm going to give you some good information here. I've got two ways that I think we're going to get some really good predictions uh, in relation to injury. One is we follow the mechanical load process all the way to some good cumulative damage estimation methods. So I've, I've brought this up before in some of my works, and I think I might have mentioned it in, a, in another podcast, but there's a paper by Emily Matijevich and Carl Zillick. Um, which essentially applies a multi-sensor 
fusion, fusion approach to estimate cumulative damage in the tibia when running. So what I mean by that is they essentially have a series of IMUs. They have pressure sensors in the, in the foot. They have all these sorts of data uh, to try and get as accurate an estimate of mechanical loading on the tibia as possible, right? And then once you have an accurate estimate of loading, you can apply a cumulative damage estimation method. The problem is, is that because there's two steps here, like I mentioned earlier, the problem we're trying to solve is a cumulative damage issue. It's not a, it's not a cumulative load issue, right? Or, or a load issue per se. So because we have to get a good estimate of forces to then apply a cumulative damage estimation method, you have an, an issue of propagating error, right? So uh, I think in their first approach, they just used vertical loading rates, which is like a common measure um that uh, you know we've we've seen published a lot on but it has no real strong associations with injury um essentially this had a 9.9 percent error when estimating peak forces in the tibia but the problem is if you applied a cumulative damage estimation method to that the error for estimating bone damage was 104 percent right so a relatively small error in getting the mechanical forces leads to big errors when estimating the damage. Um, now, they improved this substantially. They used a, a physics-based algorithm and a machine learning algorithm. And I think the machine learning algorithm, they got 2.6% error for, for force, which is extremely impressive. Uh, and that led to an 18% error when estimating bone damage. Now, that's pretty good, right? They've done a great job. So the thing is, is that this leads to you know, it's quite a heavy setup. You have quite a lot of different sensors and different information, different kinematic information that you're utilizing to create this, this estimate, right? So that's one way I think it's, we can lead. And then the, the way we can somehow get good data with minimalistic approaches, you know, that's sort of the way we have to go, how feasible that is. I, I like to solve the problem of getting good estimates of bone damage first or getting it of whatever tissue damage first. And then we can figure out how to make it minimal, minimalist, right? Make it wearable. So like, let's get there first and then we can refine it. Um, opposed to just guessing a million times over. Um, the other approach I've thought deeply of is what if we just bypass the entire training load pathway? So one of the things about causal diagrams is they show you distal variables and proximal variables to the causal mechanism. And what I mean by that is something that's further away from the actual event. So yeah, I, I'll go back to calcium, bone strength, um, and injury again. Bone strength is a more proximal variable than calcium, which is a distal variable because calcium acts through bone strength. So if I have a measure of bone strength, I don't need to measure calcium, right? Its effect is captured in bone strength. So we can ignore everything that happened before that. So why don't we look at ways that we can just measure the damage, right? So like one potential way you can do this, uh, I saw a very interesting study published in The Lancet to do with, um, so they fed x-rays into an artificial intelligence, which they trained it to predict all kinds of diseases and outcomes. It could predict race, it could predict all kinds of diseases, et cetera, from just these x-rays and we have no idea how it's doing it right we don't know how it's doing it and it had extremely high predictive capabilities and of course i think i think conceptually like if i'm a human and i'm looking at an x-ray i'm probably looking at 
for specific things. I might look for a crack in the tissue or tear or whatever it is, but an AI will get each individual pixel and it will look at things that we might not even consider. Like maybe there's a change in color in the tissue on the x-ray and it can predict your race or your what disease you have just from that. Like it could predict bone mineral density from x-ray and we don't know how it does it, right? So I was thinking, okay, what if we trained a model to accurately predict the mechanical strength of a tissue. And I have some ideas on, on how to do that. But let's say I scan an Achilles. I know the NFL has all these Achilles ruptures of late. I saw, I think it's an Aaron Rodgers, some big quarterback had a, had a major Achilles rupture. So what if you trained a model to accurately estimate or yeah, basically measure or, or estimate the, uh, the damage experienced uh, and the and the underlying pathology, from what I understand, something like sixty five percent or somewhere around there of Achilles ruptures so show signs of underlying pathology, right? So there's some damage formation that precedes that. So there's some gradual onset mechanism. So what if we could scan this with an ultrasound, scan an Achilles tendon every week or whatever, feed it through our model, and you get an estimate of the mechanical strength of that tendon, and then you know, if that has very high predictive capabilities, like awesome, I think we could prevent a ton of Achilles ruptures, right? You're tracking the health of it, you're tracking it for pathology, you get an actual estimate of the strength. When that strength deteriorates, you have some sort of probability analysis to calculate the risk of, of failure. Um, and we have some acceptable level. And then, yeah, you just every week scan your players and feed it through this model. And if there's you know, if the probability of failure becomes, uh, you know, problematic, then you can start to put all sorts of interventions in. Um, you know, if you think of that approach compared to just using a GPS and trying to, you know, think that you can predict an Achilles rupture, yeah, I think there's a there's a stark contrast there. That is that's very interesting, and it. A couple things, I guess, like ring true in my head is uh, I I really enjoy the idea of like proximal versus distal like factors, right? And conceptually, it obviously makes sense um, just from a way of like how close can you get to examining the thing, the thing being injury, right? And so if you can get to and then it obviously underlies like how are you defining injury? But if we're under the same assumption of, you know, going back to earlier in the podcast of the definitions that we used, then it makes sense for us to examine as closely as we can to things such as tissue damage and things of that nature, because then that, those are the actual um, most, I guess, proximal variables necessary. Whereas again, you use the example of GPS, you know, it, it seems quite, I guess, distal and that there's a lot of different steps that somebody or assumptions that somebody would have to make in order for that to be um, somewhat accurate in terms of predicting some sort of injury. And so, um, I, I really enjoy that. It's, it's very interesting. Um, Judd, I, I really appreciate your time. I don't want to take too much of it. Um, but as a, a close for this conversation, I always like to ask uh, researchers and other guests on this show, given their background, as well as the, the audience of listeners, which are generally people in the sports science realm, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, um, who do you think we should have on next? Oh, um. I mean, have you had Franco and Pedazzeri on before? We have not. No, not yet. Shoot, shoot him an email. I mean, he's, <laughs> look, he, he was one of my supervisors for my PhD. I can, I know it's a bias, but I can say that 
he is absolutely my role model. Like I, I love Franco. Um, I, anyone who speaks badly of him, I'll personally fight. Um, so I'll always recommend him. You can get him on. He'll be, he'll be fantastic. I love it. Well, Franco, if you're listening, we're coming for you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Judd, thank you so much for, uh, joining us and being on the show today. Uh, for anybody who wants to reach out and learn more about, you know, what you're doing or get in contact with you, uh, what would be the best way to do so? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have Twitter. If you just search my name, I'm sure I'll come up. There's not many Judd Kalkovins in the world. Um, alternatively, yeah, my email is just judd.kalkovin at uts.edu.au. Again, if you just search it on Google, I'm sure I'm sure it'll come, on, come up. So, yeah, feel free to, to send me an email. Awesome. Well, Judd, thanks again for being on the show. I really appreciate your time. Cool. Thank you, Jim.